welcome to Misunderstood, a podcast dedicated to better understanding MS and learning to live well with MS. I'm your host, Katie Sloan. A few reminders as we begin. First, I'm not an expert. I'm just a person like you living with MS and trying to make the best of it. Misunderstood is based on my personal experience, what I've learned from my doctors, other care providers, and my own solutions-oriented research and pattern-finding obsession. While the majority of the information I share has been vetted by doctors, I am not a doctor. My intention is that you use the information shared here as a springboard for discussion between you and your doctor regarding your future care options. And lastly, MS impacts each of us uniquely. I hope to shine a light on a wide range of approaches and strategies for living better with MS. But what you choose to do with that information is always your choice, and what works for one may not work for all. Last week, we talked about heat intolerance and the impact both heat and humidity have on our bodies and minds. Hopefully, by implementing some of the shared strategies, we're all hanging in there through the heat wave many of us are experiencing. This has been a hard time for many of us for more reasons than just the heat and humidity. Let's not forget all the other gifts 2020 has blessed us with. Learning to maintain a life well-lived with MS in the midst of a global pandemic. The increasingly polarized political climate. Increasing tension around the need for social justice reform. And while these are impacting most or all of us, it's likely that we each have our own ish that is also thrown into the mix. I'll mention a few here in my current world, which helped me arrive at this week's topic, because when I see people in pain, I like to try to do something to help. A dear friend and flock member who had surgery in June has ended up back in the hospital with complications after being home recovering for several weeks. A regular attendee of our online MS social groups experienced two intense pseudo-exacerbations back-to-back in a three-week time period. Another friend, who is still going through the process of official MS diagnosis, is experiencing a bunch of new symptoms and is worried she is having a major relapse. Another friend who doesn't have MS, but some potentially autoimmune-triggered symptoms, is experiencing a hostile takeover at work that has the potential to both derail her career trajectory and tear her loving soul in two. And in addition to my heat intolerance issues, I've experienced family turmoil on social media with relatives who choose to not research what they share and are spreading gross misinformation with gusto. All this to say, life doesn't conveniently hand us only one hurdle at a time on a platter. They often come in waves. In fact, it's a common belief that bad things happen in sets of threes, like natural disasters, celebrity deaths, or household mishaps. Where on earth did this belief come from? Of course, I had to research. The good news is that even though we may experience hardships and clusters, There is no scientific proof that this actually happens. That said, the idea is so universal that there is actually a name for it. The tendency to look for patterns in random data in a way to extract order from disorder is called apophenia. It's actually great news for us that this isn't true. 
Maybe it's our increased worry and belief that bad things happen in threes that actually brings it to fruition. Definitely food for thought. But the main point is that when we do experience multiple hardships at once, we can end up in a place of overwhelm. And while we've talked before about resiliency, we're going to look specifically today at some related feelings, overwhelm, disappointment, and feeling out of balance and what to do when we feel these emotions that can empower us to move to a better place. We'll start today with overwhelm. Overwhelm, which is defined as a state of being beset by intense emotion that is difficult to manage, can often affect our ability to think and act rationally, or to perform even menial tasks in an efficient and functional manner. Emotional overwhelm can be triggered by stress, trauma, relationship struggles, and more. And if a state of emotional overwhelm lasts an extended period of time, we can experience a lot of negative physical and emotional symptoms. This is one reason that so many of us living with MS, 80% or more, struggle with depression and anxiety. So today, we're going to look at our MS journey in a context that I've often used in my trainings with new teachers, learning to ride the roller coaster. The first year of teaching roller coaster is a really helpful framework for helping new teachers understand the challenges they may face ahead of time, so that when they do experience the lows, they understand it's temporary and have the awareness, strategies, and supports in place to hopefully truncate the lows and get back into better balance. So today, we'll look at that roller coaster model, as well as some strategies to help us, and learn to look at disappointment and balance in life in maybe a new way to better navigate through what we're facing. A favorite quote that I wear daily on one of my mantra bracelets is, the only way around is through. And today, we're going to look at how to make that journey through a slightly easier one. As most listeners know by now, my gratitude is often related to nature, and this week's gratitude is no exception. As a natural resource management major, geology minor, and lifelong avid rock hound, I've always been fascinated by rocks and the stories they tell. I also love thinking about rocks in terms of humanity and the lessons we can learn from rocks. For example, there are over 4,000 minerals on our planet, yet only about 30 of them can be commonly found in the Earth's crust. To me, I like to think about this as how humans, we are all very different, and yet there are core things we all have in common. And minerals, in a way, can also be thought of as our DNA in that rocks are aggregates of one or more minerals. So if we think of ourselves as a rock, we have minerals in common with other rocks, and yet we are still very unique in some ways. Like families are genetically similar, so too are rocks in the same family. In my college optic mineralogy class, we spent our time studying each mineral to understand its uniqueness, as all minerals are identified by looking at seven different characteristics. Crystal form, hardness, fracture or cleavage, luster, color, streak, and density. We would look at thin sections, which are exactly what you might think, an extremely thin slice of a mineral or rock, 
through a petrographic microscope, which is a special type of microscope used in petrology and optical mineralogy to identify rocks and minerals. These images, if you've never seen them, are often quite visually stunning. Each mineral produces its own unique kaleidoscope of colors and shapes. This process helped me to better appreciate the beautiful nuances between different minerals and also between people. And this leads me to thinking how rocks can help us live a better life. One way to think about it is to think about all the things that are currently bothering us, like all of the things I previously mentioned, the pandemic, political climate, social justice reform, or the more personal stories like recovering from surgery only to end up back in the hospital, multiple pseudo-exacerbations, heat intolerance issues. Those are the big rocks that we are trying to navigate. There are also smaller things in the form of pebbles that creep up. It all can have a cumulative effect, and when we have a lot on our plates, it can feel like a virtual rock slide, where we feel as if we are reeling out of control, not unlike how we might feel on a roller coaster. Luckily, there are some helpful ways to think about this that can help us be in the moment and be able to focus on the learnings rather than solely the pain or hardship we may feel. Along these lines, I want to share a well-known story about a jar of rocks, pebbles, and sand. There are many ways to interpret this story and use it to help us in our lives, so be thinking about that and what it means to you as you listen. There was a philosophy professor who stood before his class with a large empty jar. He filled the jar to the top with large rocks and asked his, stu his students if the jar was full. The students said, yes, the jar was indeed full. He then added small pebbles to the jar and gave the jar a bit of a shake so the pebbles could disperse themselves amongst the larger rocks. Then he asked the class again, is the jar full now? And again, the students agreed the jar was full. The professor then poured sand into the jar to fill up any remaining empty space. The students then agreed that the jar was completely full. Some versions of this story even incorporate a fourth element of water. And again, the students agree the jar was now completely full. The professor went on to explain that the jar represents everything that is in one's life. And we can think about this jar in terms of representing our entire lifetime or our lives at any given moment in time. I'll share here some helpful ways to expand our thinking on the jar metaphor. There are many ways to look at it and the ultimate interpretation is up to you. In time management theory, which is the most popular way to use this metaphor for life, the rocks in the jar can represent the biggest or most important things we have going on, such as spending time with our family or maintaining our health. This means that if the pebbles and the sand were lost, the jar would still be full and our life would still have meaning. The pebbles represent the things in our life that matter, but that we could live without. The pebbles are certainly things that give our life meaning, such as our job, house, hobbies, and friendships, but they are not as critical as the rocks for us to have a meaningful life. These things often come and go and are not permanent or essential to our overall well-being. And finally, the sand represents the remaining filler things in our lives and material possessions. 
This could be small things such as watching TV, our favorite social media sites, or running errands. These things don't mean much to our life as a whole and are likely only done to get small tasks accomplished or pass the time. So, looking at the jar of rocks in that context, the metaphor here teaches us that if we start with putting sand into the jar first or focusing on the little stuff, we will not have room or energy for the rocks or pebbles. This holds true with the things we let into our lives. If we spend all of our time on the small and insignificant things, we will run out of room or energy for the things that are actually important. In order to have a more effective and efficient life, pay attention to the rocks because they are critical to our long-term well-being. This might remind you of Pareto's principle, the 80-20 rule, and the circle priority exercise that we learned about in earlier episodes. Now, if we continue along this way of looking at the jar of rocks, it is said that in order to stay productive and efficient in our personal and professional lives, it's best to have a maximum of five big rocks in the jar at any given time. And our top five big rocks need to go in the jar first or else they would never all get in. If you solve the big problems first by putting the rocks in the jar first, the small issues can still fall into place. However, the reverse is not true. Now, this is all fine and dandy when we get to choose what our big rocks are. But what if that choice is made for us? And that is where unchosen change comes into play and drastically changes how we may look at the jar of rocks metaphor. There are a couple different ways I like to think about this as a guiding metaphor in my life when I cannot control what the rocks are. The first is when I'm feeling overwhelmed, I try to focus on just the rocks. That means I let the sand and pebbles go for now. I often pull back on some usual responsibilities, set stronger boundaries, and up my self-care. In this way, I can better focus on the rocks and determine which of the rocks I should tackle first or focus on first. Prioritizing allows me to see the struggles in chunks rather than a whole, which helps keep the challenges in perspective. The second way I like to think about this as a guiding metaphor in my life when I cannot control what the rocks are is by preferring to look at the jar with that fourth step of adding water. Water is arguably the most powerful tool for erosion. It has incredible ability to move objects, and in this particular case, cause detachment and transport of rock material from one location to another, or from a larger rock into a pebble and then into sand. This process happens naturally in nature and can also be facilitated by human activity. We've all likely experienced this at some time or another in our lives where a huge struggle or a rock over time became smaller, less rough around the edges, so it hurt less. And this is a beautiful way to think about erosion of the rocks in a positive way. And reminding ourselves of this natural process can really help us keep things in perspective and remind us that nothing lasts forever, the bad and even the good. We know that the only constant in life is change, so remembering that can give us hope when we need it most. We also know that erosion can be expedited by human activity, 
And in fact, on Earth, conservative data shows that human activity causes 10 times more soil erosion than all natural processes combined. Some of the biggest culprits are deforestation, agricultural depletion, mining, and land development. Regardless our personal beliefs about global warming and human impact on the planet, let's look rather at the exciting part of knowing that erosion caused by humans is so powerful. This means that if we want to expedite the process of making the rocks in our jar smaller or less sharp, there are ways we can do that. We covered some of those strategies in our previous Mindset and Gratitude episodes, one of which we'll revisit as we look at some other similar strategies today. We can also look at it as maybe there is a particular rock in our jar, like the famous balanced rock at Arches National Park that deserves to not be touched by human erosion. Sometimes leaving a struggle alone for a bit and revisiting it later can teach us that time can heal all wounds. Or that revisiting an issue after taking a break can yield some helpful strategies that we didn't previously consider. Even when left alone, all rocks will naturally erode, but sometimes being careful to preserve it as long as we can, like in the case of balanced rock, makes the most sense for the greater good. Now, here's the thing. Only we get to decide which rocks in our jar we want to maintain and let nature erode slowly, and which we want to attempt to erode as quickly as possible. And even if we choose to erode a rock, we have to understand that since rocks are an aggregate of minerals, and all minerals exhibit their own unique properties, some rocks will be really hard to erode, and others may be easier. There will even be some rocks where parts of the rock will erode faster than another based on its mineralogy. Keeping in mind that just as we can detox our bodies by using water to erode away the toxins, I believe there are other strategies we can employ that can act as water and likewise help erode the heavy rocks we carry in our jar into more manageable pebbles. And the main message of the story to me that can be answered by asking ourselves a few key questions. One, how do we really know when our jar is really full versus when it just feels full? Two, are there different ways we could choose to look at the jar and all that is in it? And three, what does my jar currently look like and what does that make me want to do with the rocks, pebbles, sand, and water? Let's keep these questions in mind as we continue. To help us better understand the ebbs and flows and ups and downs of life, let's take a quick look at the first year of teaching roller coaster I mentioned earlier. This was first taught in the early 90s by a woman named Ellen Moore when there was a huge increase in teacher turnover, especially in challenging urban settings. This is a helpful framework because beginning teachers roughly go through the different phases in the same order at roughly the same times. So we can prevent a lot of hardship by looking at the framework as almost a trail map for the school year. And when I talk briefly about each phase, see if you can see connections between living with MS and the first year of teaching for a new teacher. I'll share my thoughts along the way as well. 
The first phase is anticipation. And this is before the school year begins in July and August when teachers are full of excitement and on the roller coaster, they are slowly working their way up the track to the top and start of the ride. They feel prepared. They've worked hard to get where they're at. And they are generally enjoying life very much and excited about what lies ahead. This reminds me of the calm before the storm, or how life was generally bebopping along quite pleasantly before MS became an undeniable factor in my life, through my diagnosis. MS typically hits people between the ages of 20 and 40, so generally in the prime of our lives. The second phase is survival. This is typically September, or the first month or so of school. And this is the rapid first decline of the roller coaster. The air is rushing by us so quickly that we don't have a clear view of reality. We aren't sleeping much, but adrenaline is keeping us going somehow. And this reminds me of the time of diagnosis. Everything is happening so fast and it's all a blur with very little clarity of what's next to come. We're learning a lot but still don't have a clear idea of what it means to live with MS, much less to live well with MS. In October, usually after only about six weeks of instruction, almost like clockwork, teachers fall into the disillusionment phase. How long teachers stay in disillusionment varies, but it can last into December. In this phase, teachers question whether they've chosen the right profession. And it's funny in a non-funny sort of way. As a teacher coach, pretty much every new teacher thinks, no way will this happen to me. I've got this. And yet, it happens to everyone. Just that some don't stay in the disillusionment phase very long. Most teachers work through disillusionment within a couple of months and are able to start the new calendar year feeling somewhat hopeful, competent, and confident again. So by January, most teachers have entered the rejuvenation phase. But first, the disillusionment phase for those of us with MS can be the, I don't know where to turn, or I don't really feel like my doctor listens to me, or why me, I can't do this. And we can stay in this phase for a very long time. It's a lonely place, and if this is where you currently are, Remember that connecting with a strong support network of MS folks who have been through similar challenges can help us find the knowledge, strategies, strength, and support to get us back into the light. In the rejuvenation phase, teachers feel pretty good about things. They've solidified their routines, have built strong relationships with their students and colleagues. Most things are running like a well-oiled machine. For us, this rejuvenation phase is when we're largely doing okay. Sure, MS pops up its head from time to time to remind us it's still there, but at the same time, we often experience a sense of calm and a I got this mentality. In late March or early April, the reflection phase begins. This is the time where there's usually a lot of testing in schools, so we really get to see the incredible growth our students have made during the year. This can be extremely rewarding and often leads to feeling very successful and finally feeling, wow, I've got this. I think I can do it again next year. 
And for us, the reflection phase has us feeling an appreciation for all we've learned from the MS challenges we've faced, and largely feeling like we're headed in a positive direction in our disease management. We may feel like the positive changes we've made have made all the difference and that we've emerged from the other side in terms of managing our MS progression. By July, even if teachers end the school year exhausted, we enter the anticipation phase again during summer and ride the roller coaster all over again. I will say that with teaching, it does get easier in time Acknowledging that, to some extent, even veteran teachers experience this pattern over and over every year. But over time, and as we build our toolbox of strategies, we begin to actually anticipate each phase and creatively problem solve so that when we do fall into disillusionment, we have the people and strategies in place to help it be as short-lived as possible. For some teachers, the first year roller coaster ride has more dips and drops, and sometimes even derailments, resulting in a pretty intense whiplash of emotions. When this happens, it's possible to lose teachers as early as winter break, or others decide to get off the ride in June and never get back on for a second year. Knowing about this pattern, we can not only brace ourselves for the ride to come, but also strategize to help us prevent or truncate the time spent in disillusionment. Now, what's tough here is that with MS, we don't have as clear of a predictable pattern to follow, so it's harder to prepare for when the challenges will arise. However, if we know they will likely at some point, preparing for them makes a lot of sense. Right now, you may be aware that there are a lot of fires in California. So Eric and I spent the weekend updating our emergency preparedness bins and lists. Not a fun task, per se, but a necessary preparation so that if we are evacuated again, this time around, we will be much more prepared for it. So, in thinking about MS in that context, even if we are currently stable, it could be that may not last forever. So planning for future struggles could help us better navigate them when they do happen. Remembering, of course, that only 8% of what we worry about actually happens. All that to say, there's a fine line between preparation and needless worry. But just like the emergency preparation we did this weekend, let me be clear. I hope we never have to use any of it. Knowing that it's ready if we do eases my mind tremendously. I'm not as clear-headed as I used to be in emergencies, so it's a relief to know that we each now have a clear list with personal actions and won't have to make big decisions on the fly. Life is a journey, not unlike a roller coaster with many ups and downs, and yet we often focus on the downs because they seem to hit us the hardest and have a more daunting impact on us. Sometimes we may even feel as if nobody else can understand our lows. And we may even allow those lows to define who we are and take control of our lives for a bit if we feel we have no fight left in us. This can, however, lead to a feeling of overwhelm and helplessness, which doesn't help us at all. Having faith and focusing on knowing the roller co coaster will eventually pop out of the low and go high again can be reassuring. When that high does come, we feel invincible, 
like we have our MS under control and everything is manageable. We may even feel we have cured our MS, even though there is currently no medical proven cure. Yet we can show evidence of healing lesions through MRIs, so that is promising. All this to say, as Anna Ortega, storyteller and inspirational speaker, says, quote, Life can be like a roller coaster with its ups and downs. What matters is whether you are keeping your eyes open or closed during the ride and who is next to you. Thank goodness we have each other. And keeping our eyes open so we can better assess the scene, strategize, and find the support we need makes all the sense in the world to me. Last week in our episode on heat intolerance, we talked about pseudo-exacerbations. And today I want to spend just a little bit of time talking about full-blown relapses, since we haven't covered that before and have listeners experiencing this as we speak. For many of us, when we first feel a new symptom or a worsening of existing symptoms, it's hard at first to know whether it's a flare or pseudo-exacerbation or a full-blown relapse. Here's the general rule, although of utmost importance, I believe, is following our gut. So if our body is telling us otherwise, we should follow that advice instead of this general rule. If we have relapsing remitting MS, we may have episodes of symptoms, a relapse, that occur for a period of time, usually days, weeks, or months, which then improve either partially or completely into remission. They tend to happen most often in the first few years after being diagnosed with MS, but people can experience a relapse at any time. If we have secondary progressive or primary progressive MS, we may also experience relapses, but much less frequently. To be considered an official new MS relapse, old MS symptoms must have become worse or new symptoms appeared. Most people with MS experience some symptoms continuously, but between relapses typically remain fairly stable. It's when symptoms change that we may be having a relapse. New symptoms must last for at least 24 hours, although most relapse symptoms generally last for days, weeks, or even months. New symptoms must occur at least 30 days from the start of the last relapse. MS symptoms should have been stable for about one month before symptoms become worse or new symptoms appear. There also must be no other explanation for the symptoms, like heat, humidity, stress, infections, and other factors that can make symptoms worse and can be mistaken for the start of a relapse. When these factors are resolved, our symptoms should approve. If we're not sure whether we're having a relapse, we could wait a day or two to see if our symptoms improve before contacting a health professional. With time, we will each become an expert on our own MS and will develop a better feel for whether we're having a relapse or just experiencing the natural day-to-day fluctuation of our symptoms. It's important to know that any MS symptom can be associated with a relapse, but the most common ones include issues with fatigue, dizziness, balance, coordination, vision, bladder, weakness in an arm or leg, feeling areas of numbness, pins or needles or pain, memory and concentration issues, and struggles with mobility. We can experience one or several of these symptoms together during a relapse. 
Whatever symptoms we experience, they're likely to get gradually worse over a few days, or perhaps longer, and then level off. After a time, typically weeks, though this varies, the symptoms will usually subside and will gradually start to recover. Sometimes the symptoms of a relapse go away completely, but in other cases, they may not fully disappear. Both the frequency and severity of relapses are quite variable and unpredictable. A study in 2012 found that on average, people with relapsing remitting MS have around one relapse every two years. However, some people may have several relapses in one year, while others may go for several years without having a relapse. During pregnancy, women are less likely to have a relapse, although the risk of relapse can increase in the six months or so after birth. This is thought to be due to changes in the level of hormones in the body during and after pregnancy. Some relapses have relatively little impact on what we can do on a daily basis, and our symptoms may improve within a few weeks. However, other relapses may be more severe and could require a stay in hospital, followed by a recovery period or rehabilitation. Recovery from a relapse usually happens within the first two to three months, but may continue for up to 12 months. Now, what to do if we feel we are having a relapse? If we think we are having a relapse, we should report it to our MS care team as soon as possible. Relapses can be a sign that our MS is becoming more active, so it's important to report each one, even if we don't think we need medical treatment. If our MS is becoming more active, it may be time to consider starting a DMT, disease-modifying therapy, or switching to a different one. Different neurologists have different approaches and protocols for reporting relapses, so be sure you know what your neurologist expects. When we first start to notice changes, it's in our best interest to keep records so we can answer the most commonly asked questions when reporting a possible relapse. I'll share those here so we all have access to them. What and where are the new symptoms we are experiencing? When did our symptoms start and what patterns have emerged in this change? Have the symptoms stopped us doing anything that we can normally manage, such as preparing meals, driving, getting up and down stairs, working, household chores, etc.? Have we been ill lately or had any symptoms of infection, for example, a fever or unexplained body chills? What medication are we taking and has our medication changed recently? It'll be easier to answer these questions if we have been keeping track of our symptoms as well as any medications or supplements we're taking. Many people recommend keeping an MS journal for this reason, so that information is easily accessible when we need it. I'll mention briefly here again an app I've mentioned before that I use to track my symptoms called My Symptoms. It can cause much stress when we believe we are experiencing a relapse, and yet it's important to remember that depending on the type of MS we have, Typically, there will be a calm after the storm, as most symptoms are relatively short-lived. Adding more stress to the equation now only makes things harder for us. Once a relapse has been confirmed by our neurologist, it may be decided that steroids will help us, although not all relapses require treatment, as generally symptoms of a relapse do improve on their own over time. Steroids can speed up recovery from a relapse by reducing inflammation. 
However, taking steroids won't affect how well we recover in the long term from the relapse and won't affect the course of our MS. Steroids themselves can also negatively impact our gut biome, so taking a good probiotic and eating prebiotics can help get our gut back on track post-steroid use. Depending on the extent of our relapse, there may be other rehabilitative strategies like physical or occupational therapy or speech and language therapy. We may need temporary help at home doing things we were doing independently prior to our relapse. Of utmost importance, we should remember to be kind to ourselves, accept help, learn to ask for help, and be okay with taking a break from work or other responsibilities while we recover. As we talked about before, relapses can take us by surprise, like the unexpected twists and turns on the roller coaster, and the symptoms can be difficult to deal with. Far too many of us, when faced with the extreme disappointment relapses can bring, tend to attribute negative life events to our personal failings. This can trigger reactions such as self-blame, anger, or even fear or shame. As a result, we may direct our anger inward toward ourselves. It may prompt us even to say that we deserved it, that it happened because we were not good enough or didn't do something well enough. Others, however, may turn anger outward toward others, to people who didn't fulfill our expectations. That can contribute to feelings of spite, vindictiveness, and bitterness. Keeping our eyes open during challenges can help us to better navigate this tumultuous emotional terrain as both types of emotional reactions, internal or external, keep us stuck in a nasty web of disappointment. We might also have concerns about what the future holds for us or be concerned about the impact that MS will have on our relationships or our work. It's normal to feel emotional, depressed, or worried in this situation. It helps to try to remember that these feelings won't last forever. If they do become overwhelming, some reminders about the balance of life, which we'll get to shortly, can help us to better accept where we currently are, knowing that we will not be there for long. And like we talked about before, while relapses may be unpredictable, there are ways we can ensure we're better prepared for the next one, like we are preparing for fire evacuation here, such as monitoring our MS, logging changes in our symptoms and how they're affecting us, having a plan in place for who to call when we're worried we might be having a relapse and a backup in case they are unavailable, building a local support network of family, friends, neighbors, or colleagues to let people know that from time to time we may need help during a relapse, Building a virtual network like the flock of folks with MS who can lend the special type of understanding and support only we can. Preparing others around us. And if we have children, especially young children living with us, we can prepare them for times when we're unwell by encouraging them to take responsibility for chores appropriate for their age and creating opportunities for them to stay away from home overnight or for a few hours at a time so that they become comfortable with that. Making a plan together with our family for the unexpected will help us all know exactly what should happen if an unplanned situation occurs. If we're still working, ensure that we're familiar with our employer's policies for sick leave, returning to work, reasonable adjustments, and other work-related issues. 
If we're self-employed but unable to work, make sure we know what benefits we may be entitled to and how to claim them. Stock up on everyday essentials and a selection of easy meals in the freezer. Now, how to deal with the disappointment of a relapse or another large rock in our lives, like a surgery, multiple pseudo-relapses, or other hardship when it does happen? If there is one predictable thing in this life, it's that we will be disappointed somehow. As Alexander Pope famously said, quote, Blessed is he who expects nothing, for he shall never be disappointed. And yet, is navigating through disappointment as easy as simply having no expectations? That's pretty tough to do in a world that expects a lot from us. And if we are wired to have high personal expectations of ourselves, when we are let down, disappointment can actually trigger a physiological response in the brain, especially if we are in a high-risk group for depression like we are. When this happens, we actually have to fight our brain's natural tendency to be depressed. To deal with disappointment constructively, we do need to be careful to not let it deteriorate into apathy and long-term depression. Sustained negative rumination is not a prescription for change. When we become preoccupied by bad news and negativity, we lose sight of what is right in our lives and in the world around us. We focus on internalizing feelings of sadness and anger. Hanging on to these feelings can result in us unconsciously making them a more permanent part of our identity. And we know from our previous episodes how damaging negative thoughts can be to both our mental and physical health. So, we can likely all agree that staying in a place of disappointment for very long isn't a healthy one. Think about the scenario, whatever major rock you're dealing with. The event has already happened. It's past. We can't influence it this time around. We can't change it. We can certainly ruminate over it and replay the many, many things we should have, could have, and would have done differently if circumstances weren't different. However, the reality is that we can't change the past. But there are things we can do to relieve ourselves of disappointment from a past event and prepare ourselves for any disappointments that are likely to come in the future. So, how can we move out of disappointment and into a place of more peace and happiness, even if we're currently dealing with a big rock? First, accepting that disappointment happens to everyone can be helpful to start normalizing the situation no one gets through this life without disappointment. Some disappointments are bigger than others, but everyone experiences it. Knowing that we are in good company and accepting our state as perfectly normal can help. The next step is reframing, and that means taking any situation and putting a more objective frame around it. It can be helpful at this step to actually write our disappointments down, like in a journal. And we can go two very different routes here. The choice is yours. The first one, record what happened, but capture it like a journalist by being clinical and separating the emotions from what happened can help some of us get our personal power back. Or some people might prefer a second route. 
We mentioned the writing new pathways in our brain journal prompt in a previous episode. This method actually embraces the emotions and is proven to guide us from a place of heavy emotion to a place of calm and clarity of action. A quick recap here of that strategy, since it's one I use often and it is so effective. Choose what is bothering you, your big rock, and embed that into this sentence starter. When I think about dot dot dot. Beyond that, there are six prompts to be done in order. For each one, spend a good two minutes letting your ideas flow. Anything that comes to mind is the right response. When you think you're done with each prompt, read it again and give yourself just a little more time to get anything remaining out. These are the six prompts to use. Number one, I am aware that. Number two, I find myself paying attention to. Number three, I accept that. Number four, I have affection for. Number five, I appreciate that. And number six, I affirm that. The process is so simple, and yet its power should not be doubted. I encourage you to try it when facing any challenge, but especially one that involves mindset or something that you are ruminating on and can't seem to let go of or arrive at a favorable outcome. Thirdly, paying attention to how we are talking to ourselves about this challenge we are in can really help. Instead of talking to ourselves about how this is the worst thing that could have ever happened to us, we could shift that into something like, this happened, and now I need to figure out my next steps. Four, figure out our next step and start small. What is the next best thing I could do to speed up my recovery? Experiencing even a small accomplishment sends the message to our brains and our emotional command center that we can do this. Five, always have a buddy. That's what the flock is all about. We're a group of solutions-oriented folks living with MS who are here to support one another through the rough times and celebrate the good times. Making sure we all have strong support networks in place will help us when relapses and disappointment inevitably happen in our lives. Since we all learn differently and gravitate toward different models, today I want to also share two quick other ways to look at and work through some of these challenges or major rocks we are collectively facing in our lives so that the wild roller coaster ride is easier to navigate. The first one is based on a book I'm currently reading by Glennon Doyle called Untamed. Released March of this year and already added to the number one New York Times bestsellers list. Her book is a memoir and is focused on her transformation into someone who now is, quote, living her life for herself in an unapologetic way that awakens her soul, quote, and why we should be doing the same. I've found this book to be incredibly uplifting at a time when I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed by some major rocks. While I'm still reading this one, I want to share a few of her key points that I think are helpful when we are experiencing hardship, disappointment, or overwhelm. Number one, look inside, not outside, for answers. Glennon helped me realize that too often we look to others for information or approval. How many times have we hopped online and taken advice from complete strangers over trusting ourselves or our gut? It is especially true that females tend to look to others for approval. 
Yet we are not other people, and we actually do have the best answers for ourselves inside. We just need to listen. In one of her chapters, she says simply, pause and know. I've tried this a few times this past week, and it really does work when making a decision that at first I might not know where to turn. I'm starting to turn inward more, and so far I have not led myself astray. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't share helpful strategies with one another, for example, in our flock meetings. We do, but we are always careful to share our thoughts within the context of our own stories. This helped me, so I'm offering it to you as something you might choose to consider. It's an important distinction because how each of us decides to navigate our life with MS is up to us and only us. Number two, it's okay to feel. One quote that was really powerful to me in the book is when Glennon writes, quote, I did not know that I was supposed to feel everything. I thought I was supposed to feel happy. I have spent the majority of my life until fairly recently doing everything possible to be happy all the time. But the truth is that life isn't like that. And learning to experience and appreciate the full range of emotions has been very powerful and freeing. This is one of the greatest gifts MS has taught me. Rather than trying to push through those feelings and replace them with positive ones, I'm now spending more time with them, having conversations with them as I've shared in past episodes, and really listening to the healing messages they are sharing with me. This communication with myself is helping me to appreciate all the parts of who I am. Now, that's not to say that I allow myself to stay in the darkness. I do use strategies like the writing new pathways in my brain journal prompts to accept the feelings and then work through a listening process to emerge the other side, feeling completely heard, supported, and ready to move forward to turn anguish into action. So it's important to remember the importance of feeling all the feels and then use them to fuel our path forward. Otherwise, if we just push them down or ignore them, we are denying ourselves of our inner power. We can and should depend on ourselves. Doing so will propel us to a better place. Number three, be a model, not a martyr. Glennon Doyle is a highly empathetic person and spends a lot of her energy caring for others. Sound familiar? And yet at some point, she came to the realization that the most powerful thing she could do to, for example, teach her kids how to take care of themselves was by modeling how she took care of herself. This is a lesson I'm still learning, but in learning to help myself, I've already seen how that has helped others. Even this podcast, I started it as a way to formalize my personal health project. Basically, ever the educator, I put myself on a professional development plan for healing. And I know from my teaching experience that we only truly learn something if we know it well enough to teach to others. And alas, misunderstood was born. The other side of this that I think is so important for us to pay attention to is that Glennon Doyle mentions... When we, as women, model to children, especially our daughters, they learn that if they choose to become mothers, this too will be their fate. 
by showing them we are a martyr and that it is the best way to love others, that is what they too will learn to become. So modeling our own self-care is really the best gift to give ourselves because it gives to others too. And of course, we want all children to grow up happy, confident, and self-reliant. Lastly, being human is hard, and we can do hard things. Life is all the good and all the bad and all the easy and all the hard. Going through challenges helps us learn and grow. In fact, think of the things in life we value most. Most of them took a lot of effort to achieve or acquire. Challenging ourselves, even if we fail, is always more rewarding than not trying at all or taking the easy route. Remember Wayne Gretzky, who said it best, we miss 100% of the shots we don't take. And often, in retrospect, when we think of those key moments in our lives when we were most proud of ourselves, and in all honesty, most of the moments had very real challenges and hardships tied to them. It's all part of being human and learning to accept the highs and lows and appreciate them both is a great way to learn to live a life with better balance. Balance. This leads me to the last concept I wanted to share. In anticipation of season three, now delayed till next year, we recently rewatched seasons one and two of Cobra Kai. Yes, the same Cobra Kai from the 1984 movie, The Karate Kid. The movie was epic in its day, and a recent rewatch reminded me just how great it was to watch both long ago as a kid and now as an adult. The new show is also surprisingly awesome and reminded me of Mr. Miyagi's brilliance. Today, we'll look at his thoughts on balance, and if you've never watched The Karate Kid, I highly recommend it. For now, know that Daniel, the main character, moved to a new school and was brutally beaten by bullies. Then he meets Mr. Miyagi, who becomes Daniel's karate sensei, or teacher. His unconventional yet brilliant methods to teach karate through teaching about life specifically finding balance, confidence, honor, and integrity, taught Daniel a whole lot more than just karate. So here are a few lessons we can learn from Mr. Miyagi. Number one, when our whole life has balance, everything is better. The obvious way to think about this is in the context of work-life balance, but the fact remains that we are multifaceted beings pretty much any way you look at us. We experience a wide range of talents and things we're good at, and we also each have a wide range of things we're not so good at. We have a lot of things we enjoy, and a lot of things we don't enjoy. We experience a lot of joy in life and a lot of pain. And so for me, Mr. Miyagi's principle is helping me see how the real beauty of life is how all of these varied experiences and pieces of me are all exactly how they are meant to be. And as long as they all balance out, I can achieve a balanced life. Life isn't meant to be lived in a straight line, feeling only one emotion or doing only one thing. It just means learning to appreciate all the moving pieces together, even when we're at a particularly difficult place in the time. Finding balance within, finding that place of peace inside, we are more able to approach life outside with greater clarity and understanding. 
It enables us to see the truth behind another person's actions. That leads to calm confrontations from a position of strength. Take time out of each day to find our balance, to find that position of peace within. Meditate. Practice gratitude. Give love. Receive love. Respect others. They'll respect you. It's all in balance. Mr. Miyagi Lesson 2. Never put passion before principle. If you win, you lose. In The Karate Kid, Daniel learns the important lesson of managing his emotions in times of struggle. I know that now, as someone living with MS, my guiding principles have shifted. Health must now be my ultimate priority, so focusing on self-care has taken center stage. What's hard about that is that sometimes I miss some of the ways I was before MS, or sometimes I just lose focus of my new goals. And sometimes it's tempting to do things I did back then before I knew better. I've learned a lot from Dr. Peyrovi and others, for example, about what is best to eat for MS. Yet do I always stick to it? Nope, not always. And when I don't, I'm definitely at a loss, as my body responds not so nicely to gluten, sugar, or my other unique trigger foods. In a similar way, I'm highly competitive and enjoy playing games on my phone at night. And sometimes, even though I know it's not practicing good pre-bedtime strategies for optimal sleep, I will sometimes stubbornly play until I reach a personal goal. The internal pressure I put on myself because I'm passionate for competitive games can result in a poor night's sleep, which is one of the most important restorative practices we have as humans to heal. So I'm trying to remember in moments when I really want to do something that isn't great for me, that passion before principle is never a good idea. Even if we temporarily feel happy and might even win, we still actually lose. And if we remember from our episode on boundaries, a big part of being both physically and mentally healthy in life has to do with being able to set boundaries with others and with ourselves. Mr. Miyagi's lesson number three, don't forget to breathe. In the movie, Mr. Miyagi is constantly urging Daniel to breathe. This helps him maintain his stamina while practicing karate and in life, regardless of what comes his way. We know from previous episodes just how important breathing is, especially during a crisis, to help us stay calm. We also know how breathing can help us meditate and how breathing a certain way can even keep us cool. Focusing on our breath arguably helps everything. And it, like restorative sleep, is an important way for our bodies to detox and heal. It's so important that I even have reminders set on my phone for deep breathing throughout the day, as I'm typically a more shallow breather if I don't force myself to be more intentional with my breath. Breathing helps us achieve a deep sense of calm, the type of place where we can more easily see where our life may be out of balance and where we are best equipped to remember strategies to help us through whatever we end up facing in life. The last words I'll say about balance as a strategy for wellness is that finding balance takes practice and conscious effort every day. If there are aspects of our lives that feel out of balance or that we can't seem to work through or are causing a lot of either physical or emotional pain, there are a few ways to start thinking differently that can help. And the first thing is to admit that life right now is a little lopsided. 
Being able to admit imbalance is an important first step. Our society of busy often makes us feel like we need to and should be able to handle everything, accomplish everything, be everything, all at once, and all by ourselves, and in no time at all. This approach doesn't typically work well, especially for someone living with MS or another chronic illness. And I'm not sure it works well for people who don't have MS either. It's okay for us in our time of need when we're dealing with a big rock to show a little vulnerability and accept help. Sometimes a little help is all we need to bring things back into balance. Secondly, take responsibility for what needs to change. We are responsible for our actions as every choice we have made has gotten us to where we are. Blaming others doesn't really help us. The only way to get back to balance is to take steps in the right direction. And it's difficult to know the right direction if we're focused rather on blaming or keeping our eyes shut. By opening our eyes, recognizing that our choices got us where we are and that the choices we make now will lead to our future, we're more likely to make a productive next step. Now, None of us chose to have MS. We agree that that was an unchosen change. But by now, we do acknowledge that there are some parts of us, like our lifestyle choices, geographic region, and other health factors that do impact our MS. For me, for example, I needed to take responsibility that my inability to create stronger boundaries with a handful of people in my life was holding me back from what I needed to do. Looking inside to see where we are out of balance and taking responsibility for what needs to change can be very empowering. And lastly, I'll say it again, enlist support. Finding balance among life's turmoil is not an easy feat. Talking with someone about the changes we want to make helps support us on the journey. And did you know that just vocalizing our plans to someone else makes them much more likely to happen? And having someone to collaborate with and obtain feedback from always helps us hone our ideas. Just remember, we do likely have the answers already inside us. Feedback from others just helps us improve our plans. Most of all, it's helpful to remind ourselves that balance is the ability to move or remain in a position without losing control or falling. Our lives are in perpetual motion with outside forces pushing and pulling at us from all angles constantly, not unlike that wild ride on a roller coaster. Finding and maintaining balance is an ongoing process that takes continual effort and intention. Achieving balance isn't easy. It's a lifelong dance. Yet there are ways we can both learn to better appreciate and accept the ups and downs of the roller coaster and how they cumulatively result in a balanced life, and ways we can utilize strategies to make the lows not so low or last quite so long. Achieving balance isn't easy. It's a lifelong dance living with chronic illness. My hope is that after listening to this episode, you feel better equipped to Manage whatever rocks are currently in your jar in the way you see fit. More comfortably ride out the different phases of the roller coaster of life we are riding. Find creative ways to manage disappointment and overwhelm in our lives. And seek to achieve better balance in life, whatever that means to you. 
Following this and every podcast, I offer Zoom sessions for our Patreon listeners to discuss the episode's topic together. I hope you will join us. Become a patron on patreon.com slash msflock for the Zoom session schedule and invitation links. Membership is only $1 a month to access these important flockings and more content. Flock members, I look forward to hearing your personal reflections this Saturday about the rocks you have in your jar, how you are choosing to ride your life's roller coaster, how you manage disappointment and overwhelm, and how you are seeking to achieve better balance in life. As always, I encourage all listeners to reach out with questions, comments, future podcast topics, or guest ideas via email to mymsflock at gmail.com. And lastly, remember, as we travel through life with MS, we're certain to hit some turbulence. We'll get through it, especially if we're flying together, supporting one another. Thank you, as always, for listening. And until next time, be well.